0: I'm John Mattis, and this is Puck Pursuit. Hey folks, what's going on? Today's guest is Rick Westhead, TSN senior correspondent and author of the recently released book, Finding Murph, How Joe Murphy Went from Winning a Championship to Living Homeless in the Bush. As you can tell by the past few episodes of Puck Pursuit, we are firmly in book launch season. Fortunately for us at The Score and for you the listener, authors are tremendous podcast guests. I hope you're enjoying the ride so far. Make sure you subscribe to the show for more. Okay, a little bit about Joe Murphy before we get to Rick. Murphy, the first overall pick in the 1986 NHL draft, played almost 800 games from 1987 to 2001 for the Detroit Red Wings, Edmonton Oilers, Chicago Blackhawks, St. Louis Blues, San Jose Sharks, Boston Bruins, and Washington Capitals. Over an impressive career as a speedy forward, the native of London, Ontario won an NCAA title, a Calder Cup, and the 1990 Stanley Cup. Finding Murph is not a typical athlete biography because it doesn't include a tidy, happy ending. Murphy has fallen on hard times of late, abusing drugs and living homeless across Canada. Part of the reason why? Brain trauma from his NHL career. Rick's the perfect person to tackle such a delicate subject as arguably nobody in the media industry has taken the NHL to task more than he has over the last handful of years. Rick, a seasoned investigative journalist who worked for the Toronto Star and contributed to the New York Times before joining TSN, is all over the concussion beat. He has also reported on painkillers and racism, among a host of other widespread issues plaguing the hockey community. In this interview, Rick and I talk about Joe Murphy's story, gaps in the NHL's reporting process on player health, problems with hockey culture and hockey media in general, Rick's own journalistic tactics and motivations, and, of course, the Problem of Pain documentary, which prominently features former Ducks and Canucks star center Ryan Kessler. One last thing, if you're fascinated by Rick and his work, I recommend checking out the Puck Pursuit episode with Hall of Famer Ken Dryden from late June. Ken and I discussed some of the same topics, and he's another credible voice in the area of brain trauma. You can find the Ken Dryden episode in your podcast player or via Google. Okay, without further ado, here's Rick Westhead on his book on the NHL, on player safety, and much more. So, Rick... You could have written a book about a number of ex-NHLers who are struggling in their post-playing days. What was it about Joe Murphy's story that spoke to you?
1: Well, I think Joe you know, really did reach the heights of, you know, his hockey, of hockey. Every player gets into this game wanting to win a Stanley Cup, and Joe accomplished that. Uh, not only that, you know, he also won, won a national championship playing with Michigan State. Uh, he was the number one pick in the NHL draft. And, you know, from and he had a long NHL career, made millions of dollars in the league. And for him to go from that lifestyle to living in the bush in northern Ontario, I just thought that that was such a compelling story uh, that, that, that and, and, and also Joe was willing to share his story. You know, there are other players I've come across through the years who have run into hard times. And they've wanted to be more private about their situation, um, you know the wishes that I've respected, but uh, i just I just found his story so compelling, and I thought that this was a really good opportunity as well to document the history of brain injuries in professional hockey. Uh, you know one of the things that the NHL says is that this subject is something that's only recently come to light, and we've only really been paying attention to brain trauma for, you know, a decade or so. That's just not true. And so I wanted to document that. And I wanted to show with facts where the NHL and its medical staff have really been on notice time and time again and have repeatedly done nothing to, uh, you know, beyond window dressing to address this and to do what they could be doing to improve the lives of former players who have suffered like this.
0: So I want to unpack a lot of what you just said. Let, let's start with Murphy and his his playing career. Many people listening, you know, they might be in their 20s or their 30s. They've never watched Joe Murphy. Me, myself, uh, I'm in my early 30s. Like I I know of him as a hockey player, but I can't say that I, I really knew the type of player he was until I read your book, and I didn't realize you know, how prolific he was moving up the ranks. Can you put into perspective just how good and just how sought after Joe was as a minor hockey and junior hockey player?
1: Yeah, for sure. Just before Joe became a teenager, he moved from him and his family moved from Ontario, from Newmarket, to the West Coast. They lived in North Vancouver, and Joe played for a team called North Shore Winter Club, and he was very highly sought after. He wound up playing for Penticton, and uh, when in the BC Junior Hockey League, and while he was there, I mean, he at one point uh, the Montreal Canadiens had him come and visit. Uh, he stayed at Serge, at Serge Savard's house because they wanted him to come out and play in the Quebec Major Junior League or the equivalent back then for a Canadiens uh, team. Um, you know, he decided to go the NCAA route. Uh, he didn't he obviously didn't play there for four years, but this was a guy who brought scouts in, filled the stands, was you know, one of the, the, the best players on the, on the Canadian uh, Juniors team uh when that was held in hamilton they lost to to russia in the finals but uh he had explosive speed uh real silky mitts real good hands good shot creative and played with a lot of grit too went into the corners a million miles an hour and uh you know that's that's one of the things i heard time and again is he would go into places that a lot of skill players maybe aren't as anxious to get into so he came out uh, you know, extremely coveted and going into the NHL draft, the question was whether he would be chosen with the number one pick or whether Jimmy Carson would be chosen with the number one pick. And for, for a couple of years, because Carson got off to such a hot start, it looked like the Red Wings had made the wrong choice. But if you look at the stats through their career, uh, you know, Joe Murphy was a, uh, an absolute uh, top line NHL player for, for many years.
0: Yeah, he finished with 528 points in 779 games. Like That's a really good career. Uh, he, that was over a number of teams. He had the, the Red Wings, the Oilers, the Blackhawks, the Blues, the Sharks, the Bruins, and the Capitals. He bounced around, but still, when you look at it kind of 30,000 feet above the situation, it's like, oh, he, he did all right for himself.
1: Yeah, yeah, he really did. He played with a lot of top players as well, you know, Roenick in Chicago and um, you know, he was one of the top forwards when he played in St. Louis and same same thing in, in San Jose, uh, you know, was on the kid line in Edmonton when they won the cup in, in 1990 playing with, with Messier and Adam Graves. And he was on a line with Adam Graves and, uh, and, and, Jelena as well. Um, he was a different guy. I think it's important to say that hockey is this real interesting culture. It, it's really a monoculture. Mm-hmm. The players all look the same. They dress the same. They have the same kind of full sleeve black tattoo on one arm. They wear the same kind of suits and beanies and have the same hairstyles. And this was a guy who was cut from a different cloth. Joe was a real individual. And, you know, I talked to a number of scouts and coaches and guys who played with Joe who talked about that. And that that made it really hard for him to, to fit in, in many cases. Um, he was just a different kind of guy when he played with St. Louis, I talked to some of the guys that he played with there and they talked about Joe's habit for carrying a copy of the Celestine uh, prophecy book, Hmm. uh, which is very atypical for a hockey player. I mean, remember it wasn't that long ago we were hearing rumors in in the hockey world about whether Dougie Hamilton was going to be, was had been traded and was sort of a, a different guy as well because he liked going to libraries.
0: Right. And, uh, You know,
1: again, players that don't talk like other players, speak in the same sort of, uh, you know, team-first sentences, have a a personality. Sometimes they can clash with, with the hockey culture.
0: So the book's about Joe Murphy, the person, and his, you know, trials and tribulations, but it's also about brain trauma and concussions and people going from the top of the mountain to the bottom. What happened to Joe Murphy's brain over the years? Like in which ways did it deteriorate from a science standpoint? I realize you're not a doctor, but I'm sure you've talked to enough people to, to maybe have a grasp on, on what may have happened there.
1: Well, I, I don't think that you can answer that, you know, saying here's what happened to him. You know, so definitively, there's still a lot of unknowns. I mean, he has seen psychiatrists and psychologists and, and in, our, in the book, Finding Murph, I, I report on that. Uh, Joe actually signed a waiver, uh, a release and, you know, provided me with access to his medical documents. So I cover off a lot of that in, in, in the book, but you know what, I I think the common thread that runs through stories like his and other players is just this willingness by team doctors and trainers to allow guys who've had brain trauma to go back out on the ice. You know, whether it's a player like Gilles Gratton, the you know, former goalie, who was literally unconscious and brought to with smelling salts and finished, the, finished a game after he was knocked unconscious when he was hit in the chin by a slap shot. You know, players like that. There, there, there's countless examples of guys who've been out cold. I'm sure you've seen them even being in your early 30s. Sure. Of players who've been unconscious and have been back in games. How can that be? How can it be that, you know, in New York's New York State, in the 1950s, boxing regulators passed new laws that said that if you were unconscious, you were out. You couldn't even spar for a month. So how is it that you could have a a boxing match at Madison Square Garden and a fighter knocked out, and if he was out unconscious even for five seconds, he was forced to heal and recover for a month? And the very next night, in the very same arena, you could have an NHL game with a player knocked unconscious in a bare knuckle fight on the ice, and, fin- and be back on the ice the very next shift. So these are some of the questions that I really wanted to uncover. Why, Why is that? Uh, the NHL's commissioner, Gary Bettman, talks about how, in his words, this is a family. Well, this is not like any family I've ever known, the way that some former players have been left feeling abandoned and feeling like they
0: don't have a voice. Did you approach the NHL for this book? I, I, you may have mentioned in the book. I'm drawing a blank on it right now. But did you approach them for comment or on some sort of perspective? Because obviously, this all circles back to who's responsible. You know, who should we be pointing the finger at? It when, when guys end up in these dire straits.
1: Yeah, for sure. Um, and and you know, important to say that a lot of these times, a lot in a lot of cases, we're talking about players who are adults and make choices. So the responsibility at least in part, is on the players for not saying, I can't play right now, I'm I'm seeing double, I'm seeing triple. They need to take some accountability. But that doesn't mean that they should be taking all of the accountability. Um, I've gone repeatedly to the NHL and asked them to talk about this, and they won't. This is a league that embraces, props up friendly media, trades access, you know, for tidbits, little scraps, like, Trades and free agent signings and things like this. And for the most part, the media is willing to play that game. You see it, I'm sure, on a daily basis. Uh, you know, we all want to be first with who, who's going to be signing the top free agents. But to me, I, I wonder whether there's, you know, maybe I just have a different calling. I, I appreciate being able to help players and families um, tell stories that are difficult to tell. Uh, that they don't feel like, you know, is is going to be well-received? The cost for this is, of course, the NHL just simply not responding to emails or any questions. The last time I talked to Gary Bettman in person was in Ottawa, and Bettman was there testifying before a parliamentary subcommittee that was looking into the issue of brain injuries in in hockey. And I asked Bettman at a press conference after, uh, a a little scrum, I guess, is what you'd call it, actually, why it is that the concussion spotters in the NHL are all anonymous. We have no idea who they are. If you pick up an NHL media guide, you can see the names of everyone who works for every NHL organization. Trainers, massage therapists, psychologists, scouts, amateur and pro, all the coaches, everyone is in there except for the concussion spotters. This this spotter program, which the NHL has been so celebrated by the media for having, you now, this is a really important uh, development because these are the people in the waning moments of the game, Stanley Cup, Game 7, whatever, that are making the call about whether a guy who gets up after, you know, smacking his forehead on the ice, clutching his head, a goalie who gets a slap shot dead center in the face on the mask, are they going to be taken for an evaluation, you know, by a doctor? But we have no idea who those people are. What kind of training they have? How, how can that be in 2020? 31 NHL markets, and we don't have any reporting on, on who those guys are. So I, I just think there's a lot of questions to, 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 to get out of the NHL. And when I did see Bettman at that, press, you know, hold, at that press briefing, I asked him that. And his response to me was, you can't dominate this with your questions all the time. He wanted to change the subject and other sports writers there we're only too willing to go along. And so immediately the, the, the questions were about the future of the Ottawa Senators and the new Seattle franchise coming into the NHL and more traditional hockey questions. So, you know, there's a lot of people who are willing to play that game with the NHL, and, uh, and I'm not.
0: And yeah, does that frustrate you, that other media maybe aren't uh, attacking the NHL in the same way that you are? And by attacking, I mean more like coming at them with different questions, more serious questions? Uh,
1: they're, they're not especially, I mean, everybody's got to feed their families. Everybody's got a different role. And, uh, you know, I, I just try to take care of my own business. Um, like I said, i the number of people, whether it's Todd Ewan's widow, Kelly, or Matt Johnson's parents, um, you know, I've, I have former players routinely guys who played in the NHL and guys who played in the American hockey league or major junior who reach out and say, thank you for bringing subjects like this to light and trying to bring more pressure to bear on the NHL to do better. Um, and that's enough. The other reporters, you know, I guess at the end of the day, they decide what they want to cover and, and how they're going to cover it and how far they're willing to go in terms of, you know, asking tough questions of the NHL. Again, remember, I'm not a columnist. This is, it is not my job to, take, to do hot takes on the league and, and condemn them. Ideal in facts, so you know on on this the the facts do not reflect well on the NHL uh just plain and simple uh, you want to you pick out any decade back from the 1920s or thirties, and I can point you to examples where the NHL could have done so much better uh, at dealing with injured players and making sure they get better treatment, um, especially now i mean this this is a league that's turned into a $5 billion a year before COVID enterprise. You know, in 2017, Eric Lindros, a hockey hall of famer, uh, and Dr. David Mulder, who's the top doctor with the Montreal Canadiens, went to the All-Star game in Los Angeles. And they sat down with Bill Daly from the NHL and others with the NHL NHLPA concussion subcommittee. And they had a simple ask. The ask was, Please commit a million dollars a team to to funding research on brain trauma. We're talking about, you know, the NHL minimum player salary now is $700,000 a year. And we're talking about a million dollars per team to invest in brain injury research. That was three years ago. Those two guys, Lindros and David Mulder, are still waiting for a response from the NHL. And again, I'd ask you, how can that be? How can it be that three years go by when somebody with so much credibility like Lindros and a doctor who's been working in hockey his entire career, a half century, can't get a straight answer out of the NHL? What chance do any of us have to to hold them to account if Lindros and David Mulder can't get a straight answer?
0: That's fair. And I wonder, what will it take Gary Bettman retiring for the league to change its tune, so to speak, on brain trauma and its link to neurodegenerative diseases like CTE? Like, is that, you know, in your head when you're thinking about the future and where the league's headed and, you know, what they may do to to improve the situation? Do you think it'll ha- actually have to be a whole new leadership base, or what do you think? That's a good question.
1: Um, I'm not sure. It depends who replaces Bettman. H- Hockey is a particular sport. I can't think of another one where as many former players – are running teams as general managers and decision makers, you know, guys sitting on the board of governors, as in hockey, and and that's an that's important because they're making decisions like when Ken Dryden, for the last several years, has said it would be healthier for all of our players if you penalize all hits to the head, not just blindside hits or or whatever, but all hits to the head, right? Right. And 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 he's shouted down and told no. The people who are making that decision are former hockey players. And last time I checked, the number of NHL players who have, you know, a, a specialty in brain trauma research, let alone, you know, or a or, or doctor, medical doctors, is very limited. So you have these guys who you know, mostly play junior hockey. So they've been wholly committed to furthering their own hockey careers from the time they were 14 and 15 They've had careers in minor pro and then on into the NHL. They've played until their late 20s and, and 30s, and then they become management. What qualifies them to make decisions on how best to, to protect players from long-term health implications of brain trauma? The yeah. fact they played the game? I mean, is is it yeah. really a fair response when a critic, a doctor, for instance, says, you need to do better on this. It wasn't that long ago that the head of the Canadian Medical Association wrote an open letter to the NHL pleading with the league to do better in this area. And you know what the response was? We we now know this because of emails that have come out in connection with you know a, a proposed class action lawsuit, which wound up uh, failing because it wasn't certified. But there was a whole bunch of emails that were disclosed in that case. And one of them, was uh, an email string that came out after the Canadian Medical Association president wrote this open letter to the NHL. And Frank Brown, a former beat writer who has be- had become a communications person for Gary Bettman in the NHL, he wrote, he was asked to draft a response. And in an email that Frank Brown wrote to an NHL colleague, a woman named Julie Grant, who's one of the lawyers for the NHL, he talked about how he'd be happy to write a response and deal with this dumbass doctor. Wow. The head of the Canadian Medical Association wanting better rules for NHL players to keep them safer. And that was the response internally from the NHL. And that's one of dozens of examples like that that we could go over where the NHL's management has been full of, uh, no, no other way to put it, scorn for the medical community. I wonder as a, like if, if players don't care about that because they love playing the game and they're willing to make the sacrifices. I'd love to know how players' wives and kids and parents feel about that. It's fine to take the risks and play. I'm sure most of those guys know they're going to be hurt. They're going to deal with knees and backs and hips and issues like this for the rest of their life. But brain trauma is, is a, just a different thing. I remember talking to a guy who's on TV now, as an NHL NHL analyst, who you know won't talk publicly about this because he doesn't want to lose his job, and he talked about how you know he for years has struggled going to the store for his wife. She has to write the list out. He'll he'll get to the store and forget where he's going and why he's going there and what he's supposed to get, and this happens to him on a near daily basis. So the quality of life. The impact on families from this is significant. And I really think that even though there might be a bit of fatigue from people when it comes to talking about CTE and brain trauma, um, the players deserve it. They deserve to have a better system than is there now.
0: And you've written extensively about this topic, and a few documentaries have been released where you're front and center on the reporting. There's there's NHLers who are dealing with the pain and suffering, and then there's the family too. Like it's not just one person. What's your game plan when you meet them and their families? Like, what have you found is an effective way in eventually telling their stories and and getting everything correct and I guess handling it in the right way because it's really sensitive stuff. It's really personal stuff.
1: Yeah, the first thing is trust, absolutely. And and there, are, there have been repeated instances where I'll just go. Uh, whether it's driving or flying or whatever, to meet with a family beforehand, um, and that's not just on stories like on brain trauma. I did a feature last year about the Nick Patan, who's an NHL player with Toronto now. Yep, they played it for the in the World Juniors for Canada, and two years ago, Nick's father Frank uh, died by suicide, and I don't know if you remember this, but. He, when Nick played for, the, for Team Canada at the World Juniors, he scored a hat trick in one of the semifinal games. And his father, Frank, came down to the, to the glass and threw a hat on the ice. And we all celebrated it as this amazingly proud moment that this father had for his son's achievement on the ice. What the, what the world didn't know were the demons that Frank was fighting already by that time. And that's an example of a story where we really had to take our time and make sure that the Patan family was comfortable with the story that we were going to tell. I can't imagine, it, it, it must be very, very hard for, for people to open up to a stranger about the worst days of their life, about, you know, this hell that they're going through. I, I remember sitting in the kitchen of Dan Lacouture and Bridie, his ex-wife, and, and they had just split up. They were going through a divorce. Things were so tense between the two of them. And I'd interviewed Dan, and he'd cried during the interview because he didn't understand the person that he had become, because of, you know his mood behavior, his mood swings and his behavior changes, all things that he had attributed to the brain trauma he suffered in the NHL. And I remember his wife, Bridey, his ex-wife, crying and saying, she, too, didn't understand. She didn't understand why an NHL team doctor, when Dan was knocked out, would say to her, Take your husband home and wake him up every couple hours and, you know, see if he's okay. She just felt totally unequipped to be able to do that. She had no training um, and didn't understand why his team at that time wasn't saying he needs to go to the hospital. He needs to go and be treated by a neurologist or, you know, some sort of an expert in in that kind of an injury.
0: Yeah, that those are those are moments I'm sure that are kind of seared in your brain right where you're right in the middle of, the, of this uh, I guess tension between the two people and also a guy opening up and society's come a long way in terms of men being emotional and, and showing their, their true self but I feel like there still is you know a ways to go in terms of bearing it all and it's also compounded by the fact that there's a camera staring right at them right so I would imagine there's been plenty of moments where someone breaks down and, and either you guys you know click off the record button or, or, you know, let them take a breath and, and control themselves.
1: Yeah. We, and we'll, if somebody asks to turn the camera off, we will, we really try not to do that. We're there to try to tell their story. And if it makes people uncomfortable watching, then they're just going to have to be, have to be uncomfortable. Uh, my job in that moment is to help them just forget about the camera and take as much time as they need to get through that difficult storytelling uh you know and i've i've never come across uh a family that has regretted uh talking about it, um, it may, actually i wouldn't say that's universal but i wouldn't say that 's every time, but the vast majority of times people are it's cathartic talking about this and and trying to get trying to find some way to also help other families down the road avoid making you know, winding winding up in the same situation that they are.
0: Makes sense. So I want to circle back on Joe Murphy, and I actually want to read a passage from your, your book here. Uh, it's the start of chapter 19. I just find it, it, it illustrates how far Joe Murphy has fallen. So mm-hmm. here we go. After winning a national hockey championship at Michigan State, after being the first pick in the 1986 NHL entry draft, and after winning a Stanley Cup and making millions of dollars as an NHL star, joe murphy entered a different phase of life he began forking over 20 dollars per night to play shinny in the fall of 2012 while living in barry ontario and still working for service master murphy would show up every sunday night a few minutes before 9 p.m at an arena in nearby richmond hill pay his money sign in as joseph murphy and play co-ed shinny for an hour players were divided into teams wearing white or dark jerseys body checking was not permitted and even slap shots were discouraged if there were players between a shooter and the goalie. Murphy carried his black Washington Capitals hockey bag into the rink, and he wore team-issued gloves and pants and a white Capitals helmet. So, first of all, great writing. And second of all, how do you find out about this particular period in, in Murphy's life? Because it's when he's away from the spotlight. It's when he's really <laughs> far away from it and, and just very much a normal person. But also... Given his past, he's, he's certainly not a normal person in the eyes of a lot of other people. Right.
1: Yeah, that's, uh, I'm glad you actually asked that. That's a great question. It, I got lucky. Um, you know, we, This book uh, came out because we, two years ago, uh, did a feature on him for TSN. So we went to Kenora, Ontario. We heard that he was homeless there, uh, met up with Trevor Kidd, and we went looking for him. And the documentary that we aired on TSN was, in my opinion, very powerful. And it was seen by so many people throughout the hockey world. And people wanted to talk about their experiences with Joe. So I actually had, and my biggest worry was, how do I tell the story of Joe's life post-NHL? Because he did sort of drop off the map, like 2001, where did he go? Where has he been for 20 years? so I was lucky, you know. In that case, uh, the father of one of the guys that Joe played shinny with reached out to me and just said, "Hey, Joe Murphy played shinny with my boy um, and some other kids that we know." And so I followed up with them. Uh, so, you know, it's amazing to think that a guy again would make millions of dollars playing the NHL and then within a few years of his NHL career being over, work for ServiceMaster, a company that did like flood repair damage. He was going into homes, into people's basements and tearing out old moldy carpet and taking out old drywall and, you know, wrecked fridges and things like that. Um, That's, I'm sure, not where players see themselves when they leave the NHL after a career as long as his was.
0: No kidding. And I found it difficult, Rick, to separate Murphy's eccentric personality from the effects of brain trauma throughout the book. Like, I, I kept thinking, like, is he doing this strange thing, this, you know, non-hockey player thing because he's a natural oddball or because his brain is fried? Did, did you face the same challenge when you're reporting uh, this book?
1: Yeah, yeah. And, I, and that's why I'm, I'm very careful not to say that being put back into games after brain trauma is the only reason that Joe is where he is today. You know, I, I still don't have a definitive answer for what happened to Joe. Uh, I, have some, I have theories, you know, and I certainly have a lot more facts about what happened to him on a day-to-day basis. Um, but, but that is a real tough thing to, to draw a conclusion on. Um, what we do know is the NHL's not done enough. So I use his story as a way into this discussion about, okay, well, where, where were we during Joe's playing career in terms of the NHL's responsibility to players? What about before that? And what about after that? And, you know, just if I can share one other example. Of course, yeah. 1997, Joe's still in the NHL. 97 is just after Eric Lindros' his brother, Brett, has retired. There's 60 players in the league who are sidelined with brain injuries. Pat LaFontaine's from some of the league's best stars. It's a crisis. So what the NHL does is says, we're, says we're going to start uh, baseline testing of players before every season. Neurological testing. And again, they're celebrated. And to this day, you'll still hear Gary Bettman talk about how the NHL was the first professional league to have baseline testing. Here's what they don't say. They don't say that 10 years after that baseline testing started with the goal of using data, that data to better inform the league about how to keep players healthy, 10 years after, they had to fold the, the study that they were doing because none of the doctors were being paid by the league. And so because none of the doctors were being paid, they hadn't analyzed the data that they'd collected in a decade's time. The NHL didn't talk about how in 2003, the neuropsychologists working for NHL teams were at their wits' end because they weren't being paid enough either. And you had Mark Aubrey, this team doctor in Ottawa, uh, writing all of the, the the Trainers across the NHL pleading with them to be patient. They were trying to work this out. NHL budgets in this area are very thin, he wrote. You don't hear about how when the results of that study and data were finally published in 2014, excuse me, 2011, 14 years after they started this baseline testing, the NHL's top legal mind, Julie Grand, um, purportedly edited that study A dozen times when it came out. Her job is protecting the NHL from legal liability. So it makes you wonder, well, what kind of changes would Julie Grant have wanted to that medical study published by the University of Calgary on on brain trauma in the NHL? But you don't actually have to wonder too much. In, In some of the legal documents that came out in connection with that lawsuit we talked about, we found that in an early version of that study, it recommended that players who had suffered concussions, be removed from games and not be allowed to return in the same games in which they were injured. Well, in the final version of the study, that that recommendation had been removed. It's up to you to wonder why.
0: Rick, I get the feeling that you've really gained a, a, a grasp of the big difference between public relations and their interests and a journalist and, and their interests. And you probably obviously knew this before you worked for the Toronto star, you worked, uh, you contributed to the New York times, but I feel like this, what you've learned about the NHL really has shown you that the interests of that they have are, are much different than, than what you or fans or, or maybe players or whoever else may have.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's uh, to journalism, I guess means something different to everyone there is no code of conduct that says here's the kind of stories you have to do if you're a journalist but for me this is this is my wheelhouse i like telling stories uh, and giving people a voice who feel like the system is against them and you know want to you know maybe this takes us into the chat about the the problem of pain but guys like ryan kessler a guy who's played in the nhl for years and made 70 million dollars and been in the olympics And because of so many painkillers that he's taken is now, you know, has colitis and Crohn's disease and is going to the bathroom 30 or 40 times and passing blood each time. Um, These are stories that we need to talk about. We can't just, in my opinion, uh, it's a disservice to only focus on how great a sport hockey is and how it brings us all together. And God, we love it cheering for Canada during the Olympics and the Stanley Cup playoffs are so fun to watch it's and it's just this great thing and there's a lot of great elements about hockey but these these players also deserve to have their voices heard sure absolutely
0: and that documentary the problem of pain really shed a light on the fact that there's a similar problem here with painkillers as there are with the concussion issue and that problem is who who do you blame who is responsible is so it the coaches is so it the managers is so it the owners is it the trainers? Is it the, player, the players themselves to some extent? What did you take away from that experience in terms of like, okay, what, what's the solution here? Who needs to, to pick up the slack? Who's the, the quote-unquote victim? What were your takeaways? Well,
1: I guess I'd start by saying, again, adult, adult players, they need to be held accountable for putting things in their body. They need to ask better questions. So yes, you know, some, Ryan Kessler did this of his own free will. However, just because he made the choice to take these anti-inflammatory pills and get these injections, that does not mean that the trainers on his teams and the team doctors that that they're not responsible at all. No, they have an oath, do no harm. And when you have a medicine like Toradol, which is not supposed to be taken for more than five days in a row, and you have doctors and trainers giving it to a player for several months at a time. That's not okay, even if the player consents to it. So the que- there's, there's several questions to me that still have to be answered, and my, re- my reporting on this is, isn't done yet.
0: Hmm. It's,
1: you know, what what consequences should there be for trainers and doctors who do this, who give a player a controlled substance, you know, a prescription medication for two months at a time or, you know, however long the playoffs might last when the directions on the label are five days. I interviewed a, doc, a chemist who actually created Toradol, spent 18 years of his career on this. And he shared with me that this was a drug that was designed to help supplement morphine. It's that powerful. Wow. And the, the thinking was that Toradol would help wean people off of morphine in late stage cancer situations where they, you know, they, they aren't lucid. They could really use some time talking with their, their loved ones in their last days. That's why Toradol was invented. It's again, it's that powerful. And it's just become this, this go-to drug in contact sports and professional sports because one, it's not addictive. It's not like an opioid or Percocet. And two, we haven't had a rash of deaths from Toradol. That doesn't mean that there aren't a number of players across professional sports, who have suffered life-altering issues because of taking it, guys like
0: Kessler. Yeah, Kessler is kind of the headliner there, but there the was Zen Kanopka, Kyle Quincy, uh, a few other people mentioned. Uh, it was it was pretty eye-opening, if, if I'm being honest. I knew, I knew that there was a, a, a painkiller problem to some extent, but the fact that this drug has been so widely used within NHL locker rooms, and I guess so freely too, like just, okay, take it. Versus, should we talk about the consequences and and if you truly do need it, that that was that was eye opening to me. I'll be I'll be honest with you.
1: Why do you, why do you think it is that we don't see more stories like this? Why why aren't hockey reporters who cover teams on a daily basis and build up trust in a locker room? Why are they not attacking this? What you know, Dallas, when we we see some of the injuries that guys on the Dallas Stars were dealing with, you know, during this playoffs, right? We saw. Uh, Jamie Benn had a shoulder injury. Blake Como separated his right shoulder. Jason Dickinson, foot and ankle injuries. Tyler Sagan, a torn labrum in his hip. Um, Why aren't the beat writers in Dallas asking questions about painkillers and Toradol? What's the answer to that?
0: Well, I, I mean, I think a part of it would be that a lot of sports journalists get into the business for the fun and games of it. And that's not to say that it's, it's not quality work that they produce, but I guess for less hard news, that's what they're pursuing. Um, another part of it might, might be relationships and Hey, if I bark down this, this tree, it's, it's not going to end well in terms of my access or, or what have you. I'm not sure what, what other factors might be involved, but, but yeah, yeah. I mean, you're bringing up a totally valid point where there's probably a conversation that, that all of us in the hockey community need to have with ourselves in terms of, are we, Writing stories that that are meaningful. Are we writing stories that are, that are truthful? Are we are we propping up the right people? Are we uh, investigating the right things? Because uh, it's probably not not a not a varied field right now in terms of okay. Here's ten reporters that attack uh, you know very hard news issues. Here's ten that that break news. Here's ten that you know write features on on you know the next prospect or whatever. I feel like there's 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 a big pool. Journalists right now that are that are doing the same thing, and then there's a few people like yourself on the side that that are doing, uh, I guess, uh, more difficult work in in a lot of ways. Yeah, that's that's fair. So, Rick, uh, let's let's end on on Joe Murphy and and his current status. I mean, I think that's the only appropriate way to end this. I would think that you finished the book late last year, maybe earlier this year. Any idea what he's up to in October 2020?
1: Uh, my understanding is that he's left. Kenora he's moved further west in in Canada I think he's somewhere in Saskatchewan but that's anybody's guess and you know in a perfect world he have reunited with his family and you know tried to get into rehab and try to change his life and reverse course Uh, that's not happened you know he is as mentally ill as he was when I saw him last I mean he's gotten sicker he's gotten he, he was deemed, when I first started interviewing him and talking to him, one of my concerns was, is he okay to talk to me about things like this? And, you know, his lawyer told me that Joe was deemed, um, you know, able to, to care for himself on a daily basis without being in custody. And that the police had drawn that conclusion. And so had doctors at the Kenora Hospital so you know he was able to to make his own decisions and uh he as far as i know is still in that position he's still homeless he's still making his own decisions uh not showing great judgment i think but uh my hope is that he will change his mind and and try and go and get help
0: no definitely i'm on i'm on your side in that in that sense rick really really great chatting with you here thanks for your time and uh on the way out, if if you want to plug your book in terms of where people can find it, feel free.
1: It's available on uh, Indigo's website, Chapters Indigo, and on HarperCollins. And I really do appreciate you taking as much time and care and uh, preparing for the interview and talking to me about it. Thank you. No problem, Rick.
0: Puck Pursuit is produced by Nick Roy.